Well, um, as we enter this topic of, of giving, I want to bring up to you uh, a very important doctrine that we believe in called Tota Scriptura. Tota Scriptura. Maybe you've heard of uh, Sola Scriptura. I hope you have. We talk about that quite a bit. But I want to bring up to you Tota Scriptura. T-O-T-A. Tota. Now, Tota is a word that basically just means all. And Scriptura means Scripture. So, all of Scripture. Sola Scriptura means Scripture alone. So, Scripture alone uh, is the doctrine that the only authority in our lives is the Word of God, and we go to the Word of God to see how we are to think and to live. Tota Scriptura is the teaching that we need all of Scripture, not just certain sections, but we need all of it, that all of Scripture has authority over our lives, and so we uh, submit to the 66 books of the Bible as our authority. I bring that up first because conversations about Christians giving, conversations about local church giving, tend to get way off track when tota scriptura is not employed, meaning they only focus on a certain passage or a certain section of Scripture to get their teaching for how Christians are to give and steward their finances. And what we want to do is look at all of Scripture in these, in these two studies. We want to get the principles from all of Scripture this Thursday and next Thursday, with the goal of being able to have a balanced view of what giving is in the Christian life, what tithing is and if it's for us, and how we are to implement these things in our lives. We want to have a proper context when we talk about Christian giving so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. That is our goal, all right? So, tota scriptura, very important. We are going to start in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and then move into Jesus' teachings, and then talk about what the rest of the New Testament says about giving, because we want to get a full view of what's going on in the Bible as it pertains to giving and tithing and all those other terms that you know. All right? So wanted to just say that first as a disclaimer. And if you have your Bible, please grab it and turn with me to Genesis 4. Genesis chapter 4 is where I'd like you to turn. We want to lay a foundation here about giving, and we want to see what Scripture says about that, what God would have for us regarding giving. And Genesis 4 is where we'll begin the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. And what they were doing, these brothers, is that they were bringing offerings to God, we read. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and I'll go ahead and read those for us and then talk about them here for a moment. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, The man, Adam, had relations with Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel... On his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. 
Now we know uh, from the New Testament, Hebrews 11, that Abel's offering was accepted because it was given in faith. And there's a lot to say about all of that, but we're not exactly going that direction in this study. What I want us to see is here in Genesis 4, we have the very first account of an offering being made to God. The very first account of an offering being made to God. And offerings are not tithes. Okay, that's also something you need to know. Offerings are not tithes. You can see the word tithe isn't here. The fraction one-tenth isn't here. Uh, None of that's going on. It was just an offering. Offerings are things that are given to God, uh, sometimes sacrifices, sometimes burnt offerings. There are a variety of offerings. It's something that's given to God, uh, kind of like a free will thing that's done on man's part, not in conformity to the specifics of a law, but done by man out of just worship to God. That's what an offering is. So there's no law that was given here at the beginning of uh, Cain and Abel's lives. Adam and Eve didn't have a, a tithing law or a sacrificial system that they passed on to their children. But instead, Cain and Abel brought these offerings, and uh, it, was, it was not necessarily a tenth. It was just an offering that was given. Now, uh, turn with me to Genesis 14. Turn ahead just ten chapters. Genesis chapter 14. And we're going to look at the last part of the chapter, starting in verse 18. Genesis 14, starting with verse 18. This is the incident where Abram, not yet Abraham, meets a man named Melchizedek. And this man's pretty mysterious. We don't know his genealogy, but we know that he was a king and a priest, this man named Melchizedek. And there are a few more things we can learn about him. Let's read together Genesis 14, starting in verse 18. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, this is Melchizedek blessing Abram, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says, the very next line, Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. This is the first account of any kind of tithe given, because the word tithe in its most elementary sense means a tenth. Okay. This is the first time that a tithe was given, Abram giving a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek. And this is difficult to explain. Uh, in fact, Bible scholars don't always agree on this Melchizedek stuff because he just comes and goes. He's mentioned once in the Psalms, I think Psalm 86, not 100% sure on that, um, or maybe it's Psalm 110. You you can fact check me on that one, okay? But Melchizedek's mentioned once in the Psalms, and then he shows up again all over the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So Melchizedek is really a mysterious figure here, and Abram recognized that Melchizedek was greater than him. That's why he gave him a tenth of all. Pretty interesting stuff. All right, stay in the book of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis 28. Genesis chapter 28, that's where we see the next tithe in the Bible, the last part of that chapter as well. This is uh, Abram's grandson, Jacob, the one who would be named Israel later in his life. Jacob had a dream. You know that dream uh, with the ladder? Well, that just happened here in chapter 28, and the Lord uh, 
stated his covenant with Jacob, that he would bless Jacob, that he would have uh, descendants, that there was a promise given through Abram and Isaac onto Jacob. And it says, starting in verse 18 of chapter 28, Genesis 28, starting at verse 18, it says, Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of that city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, I, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So just like his grandpa, Jacob gives a tenth. All right. Now, Abram did it with Melchizedek. There is no reference that we have in Scripture of Abram giving a tenth to God. It's just the one instance of giving a tenth to Melchizedek. But in that same way, Jacob, the grandson of Abram, gives a tenth to God, or at least pledges to give a tenth to God of all the things that God gives him. Now remember, this is before the law. This is before Moses. This is definitely before the time of Christ. This is way, way, way back there in world history. And this is, these are just two instances of a tenth being given uh, from God's people. All right. Now, let's get into the law. Let's turn to uh, the book of Deuteronomy together. We are now going to shift our thinking to post-Exodus. So if you remember the story, uh, Jacob, who we were just reading about, Jacob has 12 sons. One of his sons is Joseph, and Joseph uh, ends up in Egypt. He becomes a prominent figure in Egypt. Um, All of Israel, that is Jacob's descendants, all of them end up going to Egypt, and they're down there for 400 years. They're down there for a long time and become slaves in Egypt. And then God miraculously delivers them through a prophet named Moses. He leads them through the parting of the Red Sea and and getting out of this bondage they were in in Egypt. And they go out to go into the land that God has given them. Uh, Yet Moses's generation all dies out, save two people, um, Caleb and um, the other person's name I'm totally blanking on right now, Joshua. Sorry, I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Uh, Caleb and Joshua are the two from Moses's generation that get to go into the promised land. Uh, the rest, though, are the next generation, the children of the Exodus generation. They're the ones who are going to go into the promised land. Now, um, I say all that just to kind of establish a context, because after they get out of Egypt... Moses declares to his generation and to the children of that generation the law. Moses spent some time one-on-one with God, and God gave him the law, and he gave that to the people. And we see in a few different places laws about tithing. So if you're taking notes, you want to write down these references, okay? Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, and Deuteronomy 14. Now, we're going to be reading from Deuteronomy 14. So if you've turned to Deuteronomy, go to chapter 14. But the references, the main references for tithing in the law are Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, and Deuteronomy 14. And what we see is that tithing was a requirement of the law for Israel. 
the law that they were to live out in the land. Okay, Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, and Deuteronomy 14. So um, there were three types of tithes, three different types, and I'm going to write these on the board here. What we see in the Old Testament in the law is that there were three different types of tithes that were to be given in Israel. The first type of tithe was called a Levitical tithe. Levitical tithe. That was a tithe given to the priests, the sons of Levi, uh, the, more specifically the sons of Aaron, those who were priests in Israel who performed duties in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were to receive tithes from the rest of Israel. Uh, as I mentioned, Jacob had 12 sons, Joseph being one of them. The 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And as they went into the promised land, the land was divided up among the tribes. Now, the Levites did not get a portion of the land. They were set apart as priests for God, and they didn't have their own state within the nation of Israel. They didn't have their, uh, their own section of land. Um, and as they served in the temple and in the tabernacle, serving the rest of Israel, the rest of Israel was to set aside the, the 10% of their produce and other things that they had to give to the Levites because the Levites didn't have their own land to produce things. All right, And the Levites then were instructed to take 10% of what they received from the rest of Israel and give that as a tithe to God. But that was the first type of tithe, was the Levitical tithe. And you can read about that in the Numbers 18 passage. All right, The second tithe... Uh, that we see in Israel was a, um, you know, we're just going to call it a temple tithe. Now, there wasn't always a temple in Israel. You know that probably. There wasn't always a temple. Uh, yet there was a tithe that was set aside for the tabernacle and for the temple um, in Israel because there was a tabernacle before the temple. There was a tithe that was set aside for that, and we can read about that here in Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy Chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 22. It says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then, verse 25, you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And or also, verse 27, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. All right, so you can see from that last verse, verse 27 specifically, that this tithe is different than the Levitical tithe, different than the tithe that would go to the Levites, because he tacks it on in verse 27, hey, remember the Levite too, but everything that he was talking about before this didn't go to the Levite. Instead, it was uh, tithing of the grain, of the wine, of the firstborn of the herd, and of the flock. 
to take it to the tabernacle, to take it to later Jerusalem and the temple, to go have a feast there and to go eat it with the rest of Israel. This is to be set aside for God that they may learn to fear God. Verse 23, the end of verse 23, that they might learn to fear God always. That was the purpose of this. So this tithe, the temple tithe, was uh, things that Israel would give. I say things, but you can see it's, it's agriculture and uh, animals. These things they were to give to the temple service for feasts and for fellowship in Israel, set aside for God, the best of it set aside for God. That was the second. And the third type of tithe that we have in Israel can be called the poor tithe. It was for the poor in Israel. And that's also right here in Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 28. Deuteronomy 14, verse 28, it says, At the end of every third year you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So this is a different tithe. It says it's at the end of every third year. So it has a specific time frame. And it was given not to the temple or the tabernacle in Jerusalem and not only to the Levites, but it expands beyond that. It's giving of your produce, giving of uh, your food to the orphan, to the widow, to the alien, to the poor and outcast in society. Now, the Levites, they kind of get in on all of this because there was this, the one tithe. I think, again, Numbers 18 is where you can see that. Uh, that's where it says, hey, specifically, take care of the Levites. Give them uh, 10% of your stuff. And then in this temple one, it was all about bringing these things to the house of the Lord where the Lord will direct them, bringing it in and eating it there. But even at the end of that one, it says, uh, hey, don't forget about the Levites. So the Levite kind of gets in on that one. And then with the poor, it says, you know, this is for the widow, for the orphan, for the alien, and for the Levite. So Levites were kind of covered all the way across the board here with three different types of tithes. But what's important to recognize in these different uh, types of tithes is that it, wasn't, it didn't all add up to just 10% for their entire lives. Actually, when you add these up and factor in how they, some of them are in different years than others, that's not all every year at the same time, but when you add it all up, it comes out to a little over 23% of their total income. So when people reference a tithe in the Old Testament, uh, the first thing you can say is which one, because it wasn't like God demanded that Israel give 10%, period. It's that God commanded Israel to give 10% in three different ways at different times, and it all averaged out to be nearly a quarter of all of their income. So that's important to recognize and to understand that it's not just a 10% thing, though each one individually is 10%. It actually adds up to quite a bit more than that. So if we are going to uh, define tithe, if we're going to give a definition for tithe, here's one that I'll put forward to you. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. But here's what we can say about a tithe. This is how we can define it. A, a tithe is a 10% righteous taxation for Israel 
as they dwelt in the land God gave them. A 10% righteous taxation for Israel as they dwelt in the land that God gave them. Uh, Again, there wasn't just one tithe, so um, multiple tithes. And if we're just going to give a a general definition that would fit any one of these three, it would be a 10% righteous taxation for Israel as they dwelt in the land God gave them. A tax that came directly from God, not from Washington, D.C. Isn't that cool? And it's uh, that tithe, it was a command of the law for the nation state of Israel, which made it a lot more like a tax than an offering. Okay, uh, tithes are not offerings. We talked about that at the beginning. And tithes um, were commanded. You had to do it. It wasn't an option. It was something that if you were going to be a part of Israel, if you were going to live in the land, if you were going to be a part of that nation, it was something that you had to do. So a tithe is a 10% righteous taxation for Israel as they dwelt in the land that God gave them. So uh, you want to be careful about how you use that word tithe. Think of that definition. Uh, don't say like, um, hey, are you tithing or whatever? Because when you throw that question out, tithing has a specific definition from Scripture, and it doesn't always mean what you want it to mean. So think about that. I also want you to think about how tithing, and the camera does this sometimes. I know I just went away, and now it's giving a little sign on the screen, so let me get that back. Uh, there we go. That should come back. Okay, very good. Uh, Thanks for hanging in there. Uh, Something else to think about when we use this word tithing is that uh, tithing was for Israel. Israel, it was for those who dwelt in the land of Israel, who were a part of the nation of Israel. And I have this question, or not a question, I have this claim up here that I want us to address today. Some people will say all Christians should tithe. Now, if you've been tracking with the study and you understand your Bible, uh, at least at an elementary level, do you think all Christians should tithe according to what we have in the Old Testament? Well, the answer is no. No, all right? Uh, what we see as a tithe defined in Scripture that's not for Christians. We are not Israel. The church is not Israel, all right? We are not a nation state. We are not dwelling in a land. We are not under, uh, we're not dwelling in a land that uh, God gave us as a promise through Abraham, okay? We are uh, not under the Mosaic covenant. We're not under the old covenant, but we've been released from that in Jesus. We are free to worship in Jesus. Uh, So that's really important to recognize. Should all Christians tithe, you can say definitively from Scripture, nope, (laughs) because tithing has a specific definition. Now, I want us to remember this note that giving a tenth existed before the law. Remember, we looked at Abram, who did it with Melchizedek, and we saw Jacob do it with God, promising to give a tenth of all that he had. That concept of giving a tenth existed before the law, which explained these three things. Uh, Now, that was in Abraham's family, and those weren't exactly normative cases. When's the last time you met Melchizedek, right? Uh, 
yeah, you, that didn't happen to you. When's the last time you gave a person greater than you, a, a human being greater than you, uh, 10% because you recognized his worthiness? Probably never, right? That's not really a normative case. And what we have with Jacob was a personal covenant, a personal promise that he made uh, saying that he would give 10%. So those aren't uh, exactly the most normal circumstances. And we shouldn't take those two descriptions of what happened in history and say that that's a command for Christians today. That would, that would be uh, not a good way to go about applying Scripture. But instead, we recognize that this right here, these three things, this made up um, what tithing is. So this is where we go for a definition, all right? The Genesis accounts, we don't look to for a definition, but it's the law that gives us a definition. Uh, that, that was the purpose of the law, was to give Israel definition for what they were to do. And so that's uh, how we should define tithe there. All right? Now turn with me to Matthew 23. Let's take what we see in the Old Testament and compare and contrast with what Jesus teaches us in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 23. Matthew 23, uh, we're going to look at verse 23. And since I heard all of you through the camera, because uh, this is a futuristic camera that has time travel capacity, even though I'm recording this on a Wednesday, I heard you all on uh, Thursday night agreeing with me that this claim is false. Not All Christians should not tithe. Okay, um, we, We're just going to erase this since I know I heard you all agree with me. We're going to erase it, and uh, just to show that we're all on the same page here, okay? Very good. Glad we have such unity on that. Uh, Matthew 23, let's start now building up a definition of what Christian giving looks like, or Christian, uh, Christian tithing, using quotation marks around that. Matthew 23, Jesus is giving eight different woes to the Pharisees the group of Jews that were really fired up about the law. He's going to say, woe to you, eight different times. And one of these times, it's about tithing. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. We see here that tithing for some in Israel became a source of pride. For the Pharisees and for the scribes, they were really prideful about their giving 10%. They went into their kitchen cabinet, took out their spices, and weighed it all out and made sure they gave 10% of even their spices. Yet they neglected, look at the things that they neglected, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, verse 23 says. So Jesus here isn't saying tithing's bad. Jesus gave the law. He is God. So tithing was his idea, right? It's not that tithing was bad. It was that their hearts were wrong. The Pharisees were diligent about obeying the commands, but that did not make them righteous because they were not diligent about their hearts. They didn't care about their hearts. They didn't care about their motivations. They didn't care about what God looked at, which is the heart. Instead, they cared about being outwardly righteous. 
Now, this is just one of five times that tithing comes up in the New Testament. Only five times in the New Testament will you find the word tithe. Three times are by Jesus, and every time it's in a negative sense of someone making tithing a matter of pride. Right? Again, he's not saying tithing's bad, but he's saying what they've done with it is bad. The other two times that we hear about tithing are both in Hebrews 7, as the author of Hebrews is describing Abram's interaction with Melchizedek. And that's it. Five instances of pride, uh, of tithe, rather, a lot, lot of instances of pride, uh, but only five instances of tithing in the New Testament, and that's it. That's all we have, okay? Uh, but Jesus taught a little more broadly on giving. He taught a lot about giving without using the word tithe. He taught positively about giving without mentioning or commanding or directing tithing. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Same book, but turn back to Matthew 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to see, before we look at chapter 6, which is where all the giving teaching is in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to see verse 17 with me of chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Stop! Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Meaning, he didn't enter the world and say, Okay, this law is bananas. I'm going to just show you the right way to do things. Forget about that law. Here's what you need to do. That's not what Jesus did in his ministry. But instead, look back at verse 17. He came to fulfill. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, Jesus says. That is something you need to remember in this whole conversation about tithing. And you also need to remember it in the conversations about dietary laws and focusing on certain festivals and holidays and feasts, um, focusing on ceremonies. All of those things you need to keep in mind uh, with this verse that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Fulfill it. So uh, the idea here is that Jesus was going to live out a life perfect in accordance with the law, and he was going to finish the law in the sense that he is the fulfillment of it. All those requirements that are found in the law for us, they find the requirements, find their fulfillment in Jesus. Accordingly, God the Father finds his satisfaction in our obedience when we are in Jesus, because Jesus fully obeyed the law. Therefore, God can be totally satisfied with us as long as we are in Christ who fulfilled the law. Now, once we're in Christ and we have our fulfillment of the law in the person and work of Jesus, we are then able to not be in bondage to that law anymore, but to be free to serve in Christ. All right, big themes here, but you, you really got to grasp those in this conversation. Look at chapter 6 with me. Uh, Matthew, still, okay, Matthew chapter 6. I want us to look at verses 2 through 4, and then we'll jump down and look at some more in the same chapter. Matthew 6, starting at verse 2. Jesus said, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. 
Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your, uh, what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Drop down to verse 19 with me, chapter 6. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. These are some of Jesus' teachings on uh, giving. He taught quite a bit about giving. That wasn't like his main ministry, though. There are some people who are really fired up about uh, teaching about money from a Christian perspective, and they almost make Jesus out to be some first century Dave Ramsey or something. That's not what Jesus was, okay? Jesus taught on a lot of things, not just on giving, but he did teach quite a bit on giving, and here are some of the basic principles in Jesus' teaching about giving. And there are two immediate principles that I want us to see, that I want us to draw out in regards to uh, Jesus' teaching on how we are to give our money. Um, The first thing that I want us to see from Jesus' teaching is that obeying God's commands about giving was not about public credit. I don't know how well you'll be able to see this. I could have spaced it out a bit better, so sorry about that. But obeying God's commands about giving was not about earning some sort of public credit. He gives us the example in uh, verses 2 through 4 of the uh, hypocrites who are in the synagogues and they go to give and they blast a horn before they're about to do it. So uh, (laughs) they're getting ready to do something that they think is really awesome. And so they get out the horn. I'm going to, you know, be really righteous and give this money to this poor person. Everybody watching? Do I need to blow the trumpet again? Here you go. Here's uh, Here's the money that I'm giving to you because I'm just a good guy. There you go. Hypocritical, Jesus says. That is hypocritical to do that. Um, But instead, Jesus teaches us to do so in secret. He doesn't say, disobey the law. He doesn't say, disobey the uh, concept of giving. But instead, Jesus says, look, when you obey, do it in secret. And your father, he sees what's done in secret. He will reward you, all right? Don't make it about public credit. Obeying was not about public credit. Now, the second thing I want us to see out of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 is that our allegiance must first be to God and not to treasures on earth. Our allegiance... I'm probably going to spell that wrong. Don't check me on that. Our allegiance is to... Let's see. God in heaven. I'll just put a big H. Not treasures... On earth, I'll just put a big E, 
All right? Our allegiance is to God in heaven, not to treasures on earth. That's very, very important. It's uh, central to Jesus' teaching on giving, that we are not to serve the treasures themselves for the sake of our own personal wealth or uh, developing some personal sense of security or something like that. But instead, always, first and foremost, our allegiance is to be to God in heaven, not to treasures on earth. In fact, a great memory verse is right here in Matthew 6, verse 33. Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, if you're wanting to get through this life with a sense of you know, feeling secure and feeling at rest and feeling at peace, you don't seek the treasures on earth. You don't seek uh, public credit or righteousness before men. But instead, what do you seek? Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. There are a couple of other instances in the Gospels where Jesus teaches on this very thing, the second principle about our allegiance. I want us to look at Matthew or Mark, rather, Mark four, Mark chapter four, and I want us to see um, some of the teachings here. Uh, this is the parable of the soils. <clears throat> where a sower went out to sow, and he was casting seeds all over the place, and the seeds landed in four different places. Okay, Uh, The seeds landed on the walkway where they didn't ever take root in the soil. Uh, The seeds landed in uh, among thorns and thistles, and they, they sprung up. The plant from the seed sprung up, and then it was choked out by the thorns and thistles. The seed landed in the shallow soil, and it just had a really shallow root. And so when it sprung up really fast, the sun scorched it, and it died. And then there was the seed that landed in the good soil, and it grew and produced fruit. It it did what a seed is supposed to do and uh, produce a plant that bears fruit. Now Jesus explains this and says, uh, the seed that lands on the pathway that gets eaten up by a bird that never had a chance to uh, take root... That's just like the gospel going to someone and it, they just don't even hear it. And Satan comes along and just takes uh, that message out from in front of them and it's just not a part of their lives at all. The, uh, the soil um, that is shallow, that only has a little shallow root, that's the people, they immediately hear it, they receive it, they act like they are just all on board. But then when that sun comes out, which is persecution, it scorches the plant. And uh, when the persecution comes because of the seed of the Word of God, uh, that person says, you know what, I'm done. And so that's what the shallow soil is, is the person who who bails because of persecution. Then, of course, you have the uh, good soil. That's the seed where... Uh, The gospel goes into a person's life and takes root, and that person produces fruit for God. That person becomes a believer. That person lives a Christian life. Uh, That's that good uh, soil, the last uh, instance. But the one I skipped over is the one I want us to focus on, the seed that went into the soil that has thorns and thistles. The soil with thorns and thistles is the one I want us to think of. And it it gives an explanation here in verse 19. Jesus gives an explanation in verse 19. Um, Well, let's start at verse 18. Jesus said, Others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, 
But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Part of what hinders a person's living for God in this scenario is the deceitfulness of riches. So someone who finds his or her main allegiance to be to treasures on earth instead of to God in heaven. That's why that person is not converted, is because that person's allegiance is still to earthly things and not to God himself. And the deceitfulness of riches is an aspect of that. Notice it's not just riches on their own, but the deceitfulness of riches, that that person thinks that those riches are going to provide security or that those riches are going to provide life to him or her. And so he puts his trust in riches and totally misses the gospel. That person can't be united to Christ by faith because his trust, his allegiance is in earthly things. Same book, book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 25 with me. Um, now let's do 24. 24 and 25. Nah, 23. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Okay, Mark 10, verse 23. Jesus, looking around, it says, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now that should perk your ears a little bit, right? Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This world loves the things of this world, and riches are just a, a prized, uh, valuable asset to this world. And for a person to come to faith in Christ, that person has to recognize that Christ is more valuable than all the riches of the world, that Christ is more precious than gold and silver. And for someone who is wealthy, someone who has lots of money, it's really, really difficult for that person to see Christ as being better than riches. It's just a, just a reality of the stronghold that Satan and his demons have on this world and that the flesh has on every individual, that we just naturally love and want to seek after earthly things because we are naturally earthly, aren't we? And so uh, we see here from these two teachings in Mark that riches are deceitful and riches compete with the gospel. Riches compete with the gospel. Uh, when it comes to fallen, sinful man uh, who is now in a position of choose the gospel as most precious or choose riches as most precious. Riches are going to compete with the gospel in that sense. I want us to look at one more. It's in Luke, the next book over, Luke chapter 12, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke chapter 12, and this is a long passage. We cannot read all of it. Uh, you wouldn't want me to stand here and read all of it. But let's start in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then he goes to tell a parable. And he gives this parable about uh, a guy who had lots of stuff. And maybe you've known people like this. I, I've known people like this who have lots of stuff, and so they have to like keep building storage units for all of their stuff. This man was one of those guys. He had so many things. And uh, it says in verse 19 that this man said to himself, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Kick back, relax, and enjoy the flight. That's basically what it says. Uh, it says, Ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So this person is finding security and rest in all of his junk. All right? God says, verse 20, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And Jesus says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wow. So we see Jesus constantly teaching uh, us to have a perspective that God is more valuable than anything else. The gospel is more valuable than anything else. That our allegiance is to be to God in heaven, not to treasures on earth. It is foolish to trust in treasures on earth because riches are temporal and they distract people from eternity. Have you noticed that about the things of this world that people can accumulate and, and store up and trust in? That they're just temporal, but they are a lifelong distraction from eternity for so many people? Therefore, as Christians, we need to have the proper view of money, the proper view of what to do with our money. And this is really, really difficult as we consider all of these things, starting with the Old Testament foundation, with what tithes are, into Jesus' teaching about how we are to view tithing and giving and how we are to view money in general. This is really difficult because we have to wrestle with stewardship and faith. In so many things in the Christian life, you've got these two concepts that kind of clash up against each other. You know, for example, a person who says, you know what, if we don't have to tithe, that means I can give more than 10%. In fact, my family's going to give 90%. I'll just keep 10%. And I'm going to go above and beyond and give 90% of all that we have to my local church or to all these ministries or to whatever it may be. Is that person living by faith? Or is that person being a bad steward? Well, it depends, doesn't it? If that person is a multimillionaire and decides to live on little and to give much away, that might be an amazing thing to do, a, a true act of faith, um, and a reasonable thing that's just not bad stewardship, but really exemplary in grace and in generosity. Now, if that person is already struggling to get by, if that person has children who he can barely keep fed and clothed, making that decision is probably a bad idea, isn't it? If that person came to you for counsel, you would probably tell that person, let's slow down and think about the wisdom behind that, wouldn't you? Now, 
that's a really extreme example, but you can think of some examples that are maybe in between those two scenarios where it's a lot more difficult, where someone might come to you for counsel and say, you know, look, I'm thinking about giving this money to this person. I'm thinking about doing this for, for that person, whatever it may be. And, and it can be very tough to know what to do because on the one hand, you want to be a good steward. And on the other hand, you want to live a life of faith. And so often it seems like those two uh, ideals are pitted against each other instead of going hand in hand. And at the end of the day, what this comes down to is you're going to have to work it out for yourself. You're going to have to study Scripture and get counsel and make a decision to pray about it and to have a clear conscience before God about this. And that can be, that can be really hard. I, I understand. Uh, but I want you to wrestle with it. And so I want us to close today with some matters of application. Next week, Tyler's going to teach. It's going to get uh, quite a bit more specific about the local church. This is just laying down this foundation before getting into Paul's letters and, and other New Testament uh, passages. But let's lay down some application for today, and then we'll jump into some more next week. Think about your perspective on money. Are you selfish or selfless? Selfish or selfless? Do you lean one way or the other on that? Uh, And do you live one way or the other on that? So think about it. Challenge yourself on that. Do you view God's money as His or do you view it as yours? Uh, We didn't really talk about this specifically tonight. It's kind of been implied through the whole thing. But God already owns everything, doesn't He? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, Scripture says. So, do you view your bank account as already belonging to God? Okay, think about it. Do you walk by faith in your finances? This looks a bunch of different ways to a bunch of different people. All right, There's not one size that fits all in all this, and I'm not here to tell you what to do with your money. But I am here to challenge you to think about Are there any signs of you living by faith in your finances? Or have you totally gone to the side of just wanting to be uh, in control of all that you have? Or are you showing any signs of faith in your giving? Is it ever painful to give? Think about that. Think about it. Are you seeking after a minimum wage, so to speak? It's kind of like reverse minimum wage. I, I'll show my hand politically here. I don't think the minimum wage is the best idea that America's ever come up with. Uh, for a lot of businesses, that means here's, we, we can all, all these businesses can just meet at the minimum wage and pay people the minimum wage, and, uh, and we'll just kind of all be here at the bottom together. Uh, the government's happy. We're happy. The workers aren't happy, but hey, what can they say? It's just a minimum wage, uh, and they just have to live with it. I don't think that's the, a great idea. And maybe in your giving, you're looking for a minimum wage that, okay, maybe 10% is the number. I can manage 10%. Uh, let's just have that be my minimum wage of what I give. Uh, so I shouldn't say minimum wage. Let that, let the, let's have that be my minimum. Uh, the minimum giving I have to be good with God. I know that if I give that 10%, then I'm good and I've done my duty and that's it. Are you looking to do that with giving? Because that's a bad approach to giving. There, what we're going to get into next week is that there is no percentage given to the Christian. 
There's no percentage given. Um, oh, the camera went off again. I'll just keep talking as I turn it back on. There is no minimum amount that is stated for the Christian to give uh, to be good with God, so to speak. Good with God in quotation marks. Um, God has not directed us to give a certain percentage of our income as a minimum so that we can do our duty. But instead, we are to seek to have the right perspective on money and to be generous. So don't approach this subject with, oh, just tell me the minimum and I'll pay it and we'll move on. Don't, don't do that. But really seek to have a better, fuller understanding of money and giving. Uh, a couple of principles that hopefully we've learned tonight from both the Old Covenant and from Jesus's teaching on money and giving. Uh, our giving out of what God has given us, so our stewardship and our giving, is an aspect of God's design for our lives. Uh, God has designed us as human beings, as His creatures, to serve Him, and one of the ways that we do that is through giving. So uh, even though there is no 10% tithe or uh, three different types of 10% tithes that we have to give as Christians, that doesn't mean that we are now totally free from giving because giving is actually fundamental to the human experience in serving God. God has designed us to live in such a way that we give offerings and that we make sacrifices for Him to please Him, that we give in our service in order to please Him. That's one of the principles. Another principle that we've learned, hopefully, this evening is that giving is to be quiet and done out of faith and motivated by an eternal perspective. Giving is to be quiet. Don't blow the trumpet before you give. Uh, can you imagine on the next Sunday morning that we're all gathered here, if everybody brought their trumpet and before they put money in the box, they'd... Uh, oh, hey, look, uh, Dean's giving. Uh, oh, look, you know, uh, that person over there is giving. And then the loudest trumpet of all, the pastor comes to give. You know, how awful would that be? Uh, we, we don't want that to be the case, all right? Uh, giving is quiet and humble. It's to be done out of faith, not done out of like a rigid obligation to the letter of the law to, you know, make sure that we're good with God. But it's to be done out of faith. And giving is to be motivated by an eternal perspective. Motivated by an eternal perspective. We want to be motivated by heaven. We want to be motivated by God himself who is giving and generous in, in our giving. All right? So uh, one last thing I, want to, I just want to bring up and leave you with is, do you have any accountability in this area? Do you have any accountability at all in this area of your life? It's not good that you would live your life without accountability. Okay, We can just say that as a general statement. And there are segments within your life that sometimes you kind of have to rotate into uh, the focus. Not everything can be in focus at once, uh, but there are things in life that kind of start to fall off or slip away, and we don't really think about getting accountability in those areas, though it's very important that we do. Giving might be one of those for you. Do you have any accountability in this area of your life when it comes to giving out of your finances? Now, next week, we're going to get some more information from the New Testament. We're going to get some more teaching and direction 
as far as what giving in the local church looks like. And so you might want to hear that lesson first before you jump into what accountability could look like for you. But I want to encourage you to start thinking this way and how you will get accountability in this area of your life if indeed you need that. All right. So next week we'll look at the rest of the New Testament and see how uh, giving is to function in the local church and make more application that way. Again, if you have any questions at all about this uh, teaching this evening, I want you to either put them in the comments here, and we might not respond to them. We might save them, uh, because you can also ask those questions on April 23rd. Uh, We're going to do a live stream two weeks from tonight, April 23rd. We will do a live stream here at the church to answer your questions on giving and on the book of Acts and on Deuteronomy from our other studies. So leave a question here, write down your question, and ask it live on the 23rd, and we'll address it that way, all right? Thanks so much for hanging in there for this lesson. I think it's been about an hour. I am trying to watch the clock. I've noticed that when I preach uh, on these pre-recorded sermons, if I don't watch the clock, I'll go for an hour. I didn't know I could still preach for an hour, uh, but I can if I don't look at the clock. So I need to do that. And uh, anyway, I hope we kept it about an hour for you. And I hope that this has been beneficial for you. Again, if you have any questions, reach out and we'll answer those. Let's go ahead and close in prayer together. Father, thank you so much for, uh, again, this study, this day, this technology that we have to learn from you, to learn um, what it is you would have us to do in service to you. We ask that you would give us great insight as to how we are to give in the Christian life give us wisdom, situational wisdom, how, how we are to give and who we're to give to, how much you would have us to give, that we would just seek to truly honor you with it and to uh, bless you and uh, make your name great with the finances that we have. Lord, give us, uh, give us unity as a church. Give us uh, this day our daily bread and um, cause us to take what you give and, and to really... Uh, reflect your character, your nature with it, that you would be the one who receives all the glory and all the attention. Lord, thank you again so much, and we ask your blessing on this ministry during these trying times. In Jesus' name, amen.